Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore and our favorite video games. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my marvelous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? If you ever really think about it, the entirety of Disney is pretty terrifying when you consider that they have a talking, walking dog as best friends with Mickey, and Mickey has a dog. Yes. And every time I think about this, I'm like, why is one of them naked and living in a doghouse, and the other one has a house and a kid? Yeah, they're... There's a lot of really bad thought experiments you can go with with that one, so we're not going to go that way, I think. Although I will say that I'm pretty sure Disney is what Arasaka was before Arasaka was born. Um, so we're going to move on to other topics, and this one we're going to be answering more of your questions from our lovely listeners out there. If you have questions for this or any of our podcasts, I would like to remind you to be sure to send them in. You can send them into podcasts at blizzardwatch.com and just make sure you specify what show it's for. Uh, or you can hit us up on discord. We have our patron Q and podcast ch- channel for our Patreon supporters as a way of saying thank you. And then uh, if you can't support us on Patreon, but you don't want to send us an email, we have our Q and podcast questions channel on discord where we look as well. Uh, some of these are from each of those locations, uh, with one that you may have heard from our uh, primary show because Matt decided to steal it, but I decided to steal it back because I think we could, uh, get some more mileage out of it. And it was a good question. Uh, without further ado, though, we're going to get started with the first one, uh, and it's going to be from Tetsumi. Uh, for an MMO transitioning into a new expansion, how much time, if any, should the new expansion give to wrapping up previous expansion threads and or including that content going forward? Final Fantasy XIV does a really nice job of not leaving things like WoW does with uh, with the Park and Storm and Ravage for three expansions before fixing it. It also actively uses old content area to further stories game activities going forward, like rebuilding Ishgard after the Stormblood expansion. Besides the obvious sword in the planet, elephant in the room, what older areas, previous content areas, would you like to see them touch on in Dragonflight? Tristfall Glade seems like an obvious one to revisit with having Tears Hand and Tears Fall to check in on. I'm going to start with this, with saying something that's going to be wildly unpopular with the WoW fan base. I do not think there's anything wrong with that sword still being in the planet. The sword is enormous. It is bigger than Teldrassil by several orders of magnitude. What do you want them to do with it? What could they do with it? And it's the made out of nothing. Titan. Yeah. It's it's the sword Sargeras jammed into the planet. It is far bigger 
than you think it is. It's so big that really there shouldn't have been any life left in, in uh, Silithus after that thing went down. And quite frankly, maybe there wasn't. Because you go there now, and everything that used to be in Silithus is not there anymore. I, I really feel like this is something people need to be thinking about. It, it is not something that they can just wish away. I don't think there's enough raw power on Azeroth, except for perhaps the raw power in Azeroth, to do anything with well, that sword. And I, and I don't think that's what Tetsemi is getting at, although there are definitely people in the, the community that, that feel that way, that the sword should just be done and over with. Well, I again, think the question is, the do you... Is, is the, besides the obvious sword in the planet, elephant in the room, which means basically, why, you know, should they have done something uh, counter, story-wise? Yes, and that's, I think, what it is. Like because And I don't think they should, because I don't think there is a story for it yet. It is something that could be there 7,000 years from now. This is something that could be something that comes up again if World of Warcraft ever went 10,000 years in the future. Like I really feel like this is this is a, a shattering level effect. Remember when, oh, when yeah. the world no, was destroyed? Mm-hmm. This is that level of of woe. And I think there could be whole uh, like I think right now the story of Dragonflight with all the elementals and doing stuff, I don't think it's completely unrelated to that sword. I think and I think that's kind of what, what Tetsemi was getting at. And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, Tetsemi, and, and hopefully I'm, I'm reading this a little bit right. Uh, but judging from some of your previous questions, I think it's more of we haven't really heard anything about it, even from an NPC perspective, even like idle thought about it, obviously, since, I mean, really Battle for Azeroth. And, and even that then, to me is fine. Right. Okay. Uh, first off, because we weren't on Azeroth following Battle for Azeroth. It's not like we didn't see elements of Battle for Azeroth and Legion in Shadowlands. We did. We even saw Argus. But I don't think that the sword and what's going on with the sword, I think after a while, there'd be no news to report. Still there, still big sword. What are you doing about it? Nothing. What are we supposed to do about the big sword? It isn't currently killing the planet as far as we can tell. I mean, where are you go, where you know we, we See, have no, lots well, of stuff and that's, to do. That's the thing, though. And that's that's the thing that I think I would have. Me personally, I would have liked to have seen is maybe something where they're investigating to make sure that Azroth is okay, even if it's not about the sword itself. We had we had an entire distressed expansion, right? And that really well, hasn't been resolved. That particular well, part. I don't the, know if it's been resolved or not. That's the point. Do things resolve that neatly? This is actually one of my biggest problems with Final Fantasy is that they wrap stuff up super fast. Like, I actually don't like that. I like it when stuff just sits there and you come back around to it. Now, I, I think there are certainly flaws in WoW's storytelling and I, and or in anybody's storytelling. That nobody is perfect. Nobody is going to tell you the absolute perfect story. It's very rare that you get that. There's always something. But this is not something I consider a flaw in World of Warcraft. The park in Stormwind, I like the fact that it took them a while to rebuild it. Because in real life, it takes you a while to rebuild things. Giant dragons explode with like permanent fire that won't stop. Remember the rocks outside Stormwind were still glowing? They didn't go away? That I like that. That they had to actually quarry new stone and replace the old stone because it was permanently melting. That they couldn't actually put the park back because he just blasted the whole area out. And so the new area is completely different. I like that. I, that being said, I'm going to shut up now so Joe can actually <laughs> talk about this, the, the actual meat of the question, and then I'm going to come back in with, with some responses. So I, I think I agree with you that I like what they do with their long-term uh, 
plot seeds, right? They're not plot holes. They're, they're seeds that are planted. We, we actually talked about this. If you go back to the uh, interview with Steve Denouser, uh, we talked about that where pulling on those threads and going back to seeing the seeds that were planted a long time ago and, and cultivating them into uh, current story elements or the subtle little pull along, I think is great. I think my what I would have liked to see more of is some of the the interstitial moments, some of the things that are in between, right? Because like in the case of Stormwind, uh, you in game if all of your consumption is only in game, not not any books, not anything else, it goes from being a fresh attack from uh you know Deathwing, a fresh a fresh event that happened to now it's fixed without that in between part. And you know it happened, but I think it's a little bit of like showing your homework. Uh and I'm there are limitations, right? And I want to make sure that I acknowledge that for those of you that are listening at home. Uh you can only do so much with so much time uh when you're developing a game because we all know that once the game comes out, they're still continuing to develop it and move forward with it when that expansion is out. And they are continuing to work on not only that, but also starting to split off and work on the next expansion or the next major content update. So there's only so much time you can do stuff with. Uh, and I think that that's the main difference between, in this case, we'll use Final Fantasy 14 as the example, between WoW and between uh, Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy makes it a point and has from the rebuild, from the relaunch, to sort of show those interstitial moments between content updates or as a, a matter of like the next expansion, doing something with it to propel it forward. So like at the meat of the question to somebody's like, is there stuff that you would like to see pulled back into the storyline? Now to Matt's point, I think he's right to us to a certain extent with the, what we're going to be discovering in, uh, you know, Dragonflight is probably not completely separated from the fallout from battle for Azeroth. Battle for Azeroth is in a, left us in a really strange place that in the particular cadence of the storytelling makes sense that it wasn't resolved, right? We went through this entire basically world-spanning war, or at least a couple continents-spanning war, where we're fighting over a resource that was sort of being pushed to the surface and caused by the sword, right? By the sword being jammed in, those wounds were starting to open up and blood starting to bubble out. We don't know anything that happened at the end of that, because by the end of it, when we're done, we're, we're, we go from that being a war with each faction to now we're dealing with old gods that were created by the Titans accidentally to now we're dealing with an old God that, you know, has uh, a queen Ajara working for him and working to free him uh, from his prison to now we go back to our homelands. Don't have any time to breathe because immediately we're, we're stuffed to the shadowlands, right? We don't know if anything has been resolved with it at all, Magni has been doing his thing. He's been working with mother. He's been working with uh, the other facilities. Potentially he, we don't know what he's been up to either. There's a lot of things there that could be story elements. that get pulled on later that make sense to not have resolved now. And wow has made a habit of that. Maybe it was accidental at first, but it is definitely intentional now. If something isn't resolved, there's usually a reason for it. Could they show maybe little tidbits to show that it's still on the mind, especially if you're a player that only consumes in-game content? Maybe. Maybe they have Magni, you know, pop up and, and give you a couple lines, or maybe Bronn says, yeah, I have no clue where my brother is. Uh, I've been looking at into the history of Titan facilities while he's doing that, because that's a thing he does too. Uh, or I've been trying to like research if this is okay. And if Azeroth is fine, like they could do little things like that, that 
aren't resolutions, but show you that it's still there and still present in the world. So at least to me, I think that's what it is. So like uh, the, what is it? The veil of eternal summer in uh Pandaria. That's what it's called. Uh, um, <clears throat> I remember what it's called. Eternal blossoms. I think originally veil of eternal blossoms. Yeah. Uh, so like that is another one, right? That's another one that's gone through a huge, uh, huge, several plot moments. It was perfectly fine. Then it got blown up and then it got Shah invaded. Then it got old God invaded. Uh, then it, it's starting to slowly recover because that's part of the story of it. And they did show you that it's starting to slowly recover uh, despite the, you know, the world's best efforts uh, in between there, especially when you go and deal with Rod N and you go and try to get Rod N, you see the veil is starting to try to come back and it's starting to heal. Like they do stuff like that. It may be not be as quick as we want as players, but they definitely do. Uh, as far as like, and Matt, I'm sure has responses. So I'll shut up and let him respond to some of those things. But I think they're opening up more little plot seeds. They're they're planting more seeds, like tears fall, like tear, going to tears hand and dealing with uh, the tomb that's now opened up where the silver hand was, and dealing with that area. And now what we know about it, and going to Dragonflight and learning about it there. It's going to be tied in. There's going to be something that, that ties those points together. Matt and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We Tyr's body was never found. We don't know where it is. We don't know what happened to him. It wasn't in the tomb. Why wasn't it in the tomb? So I'm sure we're going to find out more about that. And that's going to be another thing that ties those two together. Uh, you know, the Stormwind thing maybe was a, a weird example for trying to break down like the good and bad of it, but it's a thing that happened. What I would... I like to have seen maybe a patch where they had scaffolding up or, or something like that. Sure. But again, there's only so much time that they have to develop and work on those things. And what would you rather them work on? Would you rather them work on having NPCs putting scaffolding up, which is probably more complicated than you think. It probably would break something in Alduar. Uh, or would you <laughs> I remember when everything breaks something in Alduar <laughs> still does. Uh, or would you rather them start working on the next content patch or the next expansion? Like it's a balance of, of assets. Cause at the end of the day, even though we love the story, and even though like the story being presented in game is a big deal to us, you kind of have to fill in the gaps, especially on one, a game this big into a game this old. So, you know, some of those gaps are filled in in books. Some of those are filled in, in, in comic books. Some of those are filled in, in short stories that are released on the website. And sometimes that's the best you're going to get instead of having the final fantasy approach where everything for final fantasy is consumed through final fantasy. There is no other Avenue for it. There aren't Final Fantasy fourteen books that I know of that really tie it's in. It's just a shame because I have absolutely no idea what's going on in that game every time I even try to play it. Yeah, and I agree. I would I would read those in a heartbeat, but it, they also don't have a budget for it like WoW does, right? Uh, Final Fantasy fourteen puts everything into the development of the game, and so as a result, their story has to be told through the game. Blizzard has cinematic teams that will produce standalone cinematics. They have writers uh, like Madeline Rue and like Christy Golden's on staff. And, you know, they'll write books and be pulled in to do that. And their job is to fill in the gaps of those stories. They have an entire team dedicated to lore and storytelling and consistency. But that's also because they don't just do it only in the game. They do it through a dozen other avenues. That's a long way of saying like, there's probably, we can get to the meat of it and say what we think or what we would want to see, but that's some context for you. And I'm going to shut up and let Matt talk a little. Well, first up, I think we're, we got to remember that the next expansion is three years after the end of Shadowlands. Mm -hmm. And think about 
three years after the end of Shadowlands, three years after a Death Lord, for lack of a better term, uh, I don't know what you would call him, Zoval, one of the Eternal Ones, blah, blah, whatever. To the average person, he's just some big bad death guy. Tried to kill Azeroth to, to do some something incomprehensible to most people. Like, you know, kill the entire world to make a new universe entirely. That one, one with completely different rules that did whatever he wanted. The kind of thing most people never going to find out about. And the people who know about it probably have no idea what the heck it even means. That happened three years ago. At the tail end of about a year and a half of all the stuff that took place with Nizoth and with the, the, the War of the Thorns or whatever it was being called, from Legion on, just just breakneck insanity that, that culminated in this attack that failed, thankfully, and, and Azeroth is still around. But from that period of time to the three years are up, suddenly the Dragon Isles become reachable again which means that the mana that was being drained away from them ever since the Sundering is reaching them again. What things happened to Azeroth in, in the recent history that could explain that? Malagos messing around with the ley lines in Wrath of the Lich King, pulling them all to one place. Then when he dies, the ley lines are released. Do they just snap back into the original formulation? What get- are ley lines? Some titan-sized acupuncture, maybe? Yeah, who knows? But we know that raw mana, raw power was coming up from Azeroth after the sword wound. We know that like, the effective blood of Azeroth is pure power. It's power on a scale we can barely even comprehend. It's power on a scale so strong that it seems to be exactly what the, the Jailer was trying to draw on. And was drawing upon. He was pulling it out using those engines in Northrend. The ones that were originally built by, you know, Arthas as the Lich King, the Forge of Souls and all that. He was using that complex to draw upon the power of the world. Mm-hmm. And then it was, again, stopped. And now the world has had three years to basically rebound. And it's had about five or six years to rebound from being stabbed. I keep thinking about why is the mana coming back? Why is the, are the Dragon Isles suddenly reachable? Why does it look like the dragon aspects are reclaiming things that they, they may have lost. What does this have to do with, we know that we're going back to Alduar during the pre-patch event, not Alduar, sorry, Aldemon. That was my bad. We're going back to Aldemon during the pre-patch and Aldemon was created by two of the three Titan watchers who left with the, you know, the ancient humans uh, in the first place. I mean, it wasn't created by them, but they were going to it. Uh, they were trying to get there for what? We've never really actually found out what what tier Arcadis and Ironia thought they were doing. Or why it was important, right? Yeah. They were doing something. They were going somewhere. It was important enough for Tyr to say, go, I'll hold these two monsters here and take on Kithix and Zakajaz. And it can't I'm just sorry, be- I'm never going to say that guy's name and not say Zakajaz, because he yeah. sounds like he's just jazz hands. I was just going to say it's always jazz hands. But I mean, yeah, because it-, it, it it just being a vault doesn't make sense, right? Like if it's well, just a it, vault, there's other places they could have done that. It makes sense if it's a vault for something specific. Like it, it, if it's just random vault, but we don't actually know where Tyr made the aspects, the aspects, mm-hmm. because the world was completely different then. All the places we have now weren't there. Remember that the entire continent of Azeroth got shattered and pushed in directions. Like it didn't just subduct. 
it did subduct, but it didn't just subduct. Those continents were pushed away from each other. They were closer before. So we don't know if Aldemon used to be the place. It might have been the very first place they built when they were setting up the war against the, the old gods. It's Remember real- that they came, to, they came to Azeroth. They were brought there by the Titans and basically dropped on the planet with the, with the goal of taking the planet back from the old gods. And the first thing they did was kick the, the elementals butts before they even fought the old gods. It's also they went real, off and ki- it's, real, ahead, real clo- it's real close to the, the hall of uh, re, re, uh, wow. Reorigination. Yeah, it is. It's close to it. If you remember that these continents were all once together, because uh-huh. reorigination is on the other side of where the well eternity was, but it's still almost in a direct line. Like it's almost diagonal from each other. Um, and think about like, if you think about all this stuff, you think about like, one of the reasons I think that the sword may not come up directly in Dragonflight, but the sword starts off essentially We've all thought that Sargeras was trying to kill Azeroth, or he was trying to kill the old god sleeping in Silithus. But we don't know that killing is what he was trying to do. I mean, it certainly looked like it, because, you know, usually if you stab something with a giant sword, you're killing but it. But he also wasn't doing that until we pulled him away. Yeah. And for that matter, he was... There's there's the old idea that when, when Sargeras came to the Void Planet, that he, he used his giant sword to destroy it because he was killing... He wanted to kill the, the corrupted Titan inside... But we don't know that, you know? We only have other people's opinions. For all we know, Sargeras thought he could cleanse it, and that's why he did it. Or he may have thought, well, Titan world souls aren't really perishable in the same way as mortals, because we know they don't go to the Shadowlands. Maybe he thought, F it, I'll just destroy the planet, and the world soul will be free to go wherever. You know, We don't know even what the goal for Argus was. We know what they were using Argus to do, but we don't know why. Clearly he still had the ability to bring Argus forth as a world soul because we fight the thing, you know, the Pantheon brings Argus forth and it's, it's a being, it's an insane being, but it's a being. There's a lot to this. We don't know. We don't, we know some things only from the perspective of certain beings. We've been told things that may or may not actually be true uh, about, you know, Azeroth, about its origins, about its nature. I think it's quite possible that that sword strike is the beginning of a complete change to the world that we're just now starting to see the very first part of because suddenly the ley lines are back and suddenly these primordial elemental dragons are free and they hate the Titans and they hate everything the Titans did, including making the dragon aspects. They hate the Titan forge for making the dragon aspects and they want what Azeroth's true purpose was back but who knows where they got that from? Who knows who gave them that purpose? There is a lot. This expansion is going to be essentially what I've wanted to see since original, you know, the Dragon Isles were mentioned in World of Warcraft, the original World of Warcraft, classic, whatever you want to call it. The original 1 to 60 game, the Dragon Isles were mentioned. We even thought we might get them as an, as an expansion. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I've wanted to know what was up with the Dragon Isles. I mean, is everything going to be revealed the way I want it to be revealed? No, of course not. But I think some of the stuff that's out there is going to, it's not going to get wrapped up. That's the thing. I don't think it'll be wrapped up. People keep expecting things to get wrapped up like the end of a TV series where you got a finale episode and everything gets cleaned up for you. And it's like, this is what was going on. I don't think that's going to happen. But I think by the the midpoint of Dragonflight, we are going to be looking at the, the 
answer to a mystery that creates another mystery. And it involves all this stuff we've already seen. All these old Titan facilities. Why the Titans were experimenting on old god bits. Like what they were hoping to do. What the nature of the dragon experiment is. Why Galakrond happened. And what Galakrond was. Because we don't know that. We have no idea why Galakrond started eating dragons and spitting out corpses that turned into undead dragons. You know? A lot of the stuff about it looked old god. Remember? Tentacles? Yeah. But it was pulling forth, it was making corpses that, it was making the undead. Like, did they, was it just old gods that they were experimenting with? Like, we have no idea. But I think that Galakrond is is a big part of this, and we're going to see more about him, which I've wanted since Wrath, when we were digging up his body. You know, and it, it's interesting that Arthas went right for Galakrond, too. He went right for him. Yeah, and was and that, was that, Arth- was. was that Arthas or was that influence from the helm? Yeah, was it was it the jailer? Who knows? And why? Why did they want it? And we know that there's some there's some hints that Tyr is somehow responsible for what happened to Galakrond. But how was he responsible? Was he responsible through action or in, or inaction? Was he experimenting on Galakrond? What did he trying to do? Was he trying to turn Galakrond into a into a defender of Azeroth? Because imagine if he pulled that off. Galakrond was bigger than the aspects. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's there's a ton of stuff I think is coming that I think will be related in, and uh, there's just so much of it that I don't I don't really want to speculate too much on the on the podcast yet, because there's stuff that will be coming out that will either completely point us in that direction or point us in a direction I haven't even thought of. So for right now, I'll just say that much. Yeah. So I mean, probably a long winded explanation uh, for both of us here as far as that goes, but yeah, I think. I think I agree with Matt that we're pretty good where we are as far as that goes. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next question, though, and this one comes from our good friend 6K. What do you think the chances are the Void Lords are actually the first ones? Zero. Yeah, I don't think that they're the first ones. However. We don't know what the first ones are, but. No, no, I just think I think keep watching this space for speculation about the Void Lords and their role. Oh, in yeah. the first one's creation, because it's entirely possible that the void and the you know the void and the void lords are a part of existence. They, previously, we we thought they weren't, but if if this if the creation of the first ones works the way I think it is hinting that it does, that all the things that are that exist, even the things like the void, you can't exist without knowing what you aren't. You can't have like if you don't have differences and it's like the old idea that, you know, if everything is light and there's no shadow, you don't have any variation Then there is nothing. If there's no, if it's all just the same thing, then there's no way to tell it apart from anything else. You have to have voids to have definition. You have to have that idea. It, there has to be, what about all the things that aren't here? You, you have to know that. To, to have anything. So I think that th- th- there's going to be eventually in some cosmology somewhere, we're going to see something that really is negation. That's something that is outside of creation. And I don't think it's the void Lords. I think the void Lords are actually inside creation because you can't create without lines. Yeah. And, and let's, and, le- and let's be honest, right? Like the, the void Lords hurling pieces of themselves. We're told that they hurl it into the prime material, which, okay, sure, we can call it the prime material or the, the center of the universe, whatever. And that when it lands on those planets, it's not the same as what it was that was 
thrown into that space to begin with, right? It's altered by coming in contact with basically a planar space that occupies or at least touches all of the other planar spaces. The old gods in particular are our first, they're our first indication of that. They're there for our first sight of that specific thing. They're- you know what they remind me of? And the Void Lords remind me of? Hmm. Because we keep ha- we keep having that whole thing about the thousand truths and and about how they you know they they hold all these different things to be possible, but they work on the world that they find. Yes, you know, and that's the thing that I think you've mentioned it before too. I'm not saying this is my first thing. You know, I'm just saying I, I think it's interesting that they work on what's there in a weird sort of way. It's like creativity. Creativity. What is it we used to say? Something from out of nothing. Ex nihilo. That's what they are. That's what the old gods are. They are something out of nothing. They take the material of the place that they land on and they turn it into this. Mm-hmm. And that's, at, that's fascinating in its way. Look at the, go back to the description of the black empire. Go back to the description of, of what the old gods were on the surface of Azeroth during that time frame. It was a corruption. It was a re-manipulation of matter. There's a reason why they created things like the reorigination device. It's not necessarily so that they could, you know, just purge the planet clean, but they built it because looking at the old gods, you, you start to understand the problem, right? They're taking natural things or taking what is essentially the essence and, and cellular structure of a Titan. That's what the planet is around it. That's what we are. We're, we're born of that sleeping Titan. Uh, and it's manipulating that code. It's, it's moving things around. It's messing with the order of things. Uh, and it's, but it's still using your stuff. So it's like with a hard drive, if your hard drive becomes corrupted with a virus, what do you do? You restore to a backup, you wipe it clean and you move it back. Right. Why would they do that there? But we don't necessarily see evidence evidence of it elsewhere. Right. We don't hear about it anywhere else. We don't hear about those types of devices anywhere else. Uh, We know that they've touched other worlds. We don't, I mean, not that we know for certain that they're not, but still like it's, it seems almost like a unique function, but also Azeroth was unique in the fact that besides the planet, that Sargeras exploded, what other plan and, and I believe Koresh was exploded by the uh, full consumption of the void, right? I think it was like a critical mass, if I remember correctly, the ethereal homeworld. Mm-hmm. Besides that, Azeroth was on that trajectory, and they very clearly had seen that before, but the Black Empire was manipulating the surface, manipulating the creatures. It's how the Cathraxi were born. It was how the Silithid were born. It, or, it's... It's interesting, but I think Matt's I think Matt's right on it. I think Voidlers are something different. I think they're they're not the first ones, but they're not completely separated from the influence of the first ones. And I think we talked about that before. Where why is Azeroth important? Why does why is there a direct line from Azeroth to Zareth Mortis? Why is that a thing that was set up in the Sepulchre of the first ones? Well, maybe it's because of something to do with this. Maybe it's because uh, of some weird channel that the first one set up for a specific reason that we don't understand yet, but I don't think it has anything to do with the void Lords being the first ones, but they can definitely interface with things that the first ones made or had influence over or helped birth because we see that all the time. We even see it when they can go into the shadowlands. So, and that whole bit with the void Lords are invading the shadowlands 
has a lot of interest because you notice the Void Lords went for Bastion and the the Vo- the uh, Naru, the Servants of the Light. We didn't go for Bastion. Where'd they go? They went for Revendreth. That that's that's, that's interesting, interesting too, right? Yeah, because yeah. like you you would figure like Bastion being a place where the 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 Naru would be like, here are other servants of duty and good. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't they go there? Well, I mean. Because they didn't want to invade that, did they? No. They wanted to invade the place that wasn't that. Uh-huh. And the same thing for the Void. The Void's not going to... Why would the Void go to Revendreth if, at most, they'd provide some entertainment for a while? You know? Uh, I just... There's a fascinating... The interconnectedness of the Light and the Void and the various origin stories we've been told about the, Lord and the Light and the Void are... There's more to that to see, in my opinion. Like, I think there is a lot more to see in the way that these forces interact and what they actually are to each other. So I am very much looking forward to it. Uh, And I do think we're not going to get the answers to a lot of this stuff for a very long time, if at all. It's stuff that's going on in the background. I believe the thing that that you said when when Chronicle first came out is more true than ever. It's like, instead of answering questions, they're they're giving you more questions. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, it's not about, sure, they'll tell you this thing, but this thing just makes, you know, in the words of Hermes Comrade, that just raises further questions. You know, it is, and it's going to be like that for years. So, But we're going to move on to the next question, which is uh, the one that I stole from uh, the, the Tuesday show, because I think we can we can go into a little bit deeper this one. Uh, this is from Mementh. The what other shows, books, media of any kind has a story where the dragon is not beaten. There is no winner or loser per se. What do you feel about those? For me, the story might be done, things resolved, but there is no end or satisfaction and revokes thought and such about the story. So we talked about this a little bit on Tuesday, but for those of you that don't listen to the regular podcast, it's an interesting uh, perspective of storytelling until you realize that it is very widely used. Very seldom is a story ever cut into black and white, especially recently with modern day storytelling. Now there are some that do and there are there. I mean, well, there are several that do, but even in like, Oh, let's go with comic books. Let's go with Spider-Man. Cause of course I'm going to go with Spider-Man. How many times has Spider-Man beaten Norman Osborn, the green goblin one yet Norman's still there still around, still able to influence things. Even now, even throughout superior Spider-Man, Norman was still there causing havoc, causing a whole bunch of pain as the Goblin King. Every time a story arc ends, even when Norman gets beaten, it's not really done. It's not satisfactory because how many people were hurt on the way to that, that, that end, how many people lost their lives, how many businesses destroyed. It's not clean. It's never clean. And then eventually it's just going to happen again. Heck, it's to the point now where they're actually trying a storyline where Norman is good. Yeah. And is trying to help Spider-Man. Finally. I mean, and we don't think it's going to last. Nobody looking at this thinks this is going to be the story going forward. Because we know we understand that comic books are a cyclical media. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think it's interesting. Another one, if, you, if you've been looking at the way the X-Men story is currently going is they've taken the constant cycle of rejected by a world that fears and hates them sort of thing. And have finally the mutants are like, you know what? F you people. We're going to make our own world with, with like, you know, with blackjack and, and us having orgies and you're not invited. Oh, and we don't die anymore ever. If we get killed, we just get resurrected immediately. Suck it. And that's, we don't think that story is going to last forever either, but it's an interesting way to take 
the tropes of the story and turn them on their head where characters like Apocalypse and Magneto are now big stalwarts in this new order. They're almost like, I wouldn't say they're heroes because they're Magneto and Apocalypse, but they're still major players. Mr. Sinister is a major player. And you have to have these characters. Nobody is the villain in this, but they're all, they all have big egos and they all have their own agendas. And you're watching these people try and get around it in, in a way, it's almost more interesting than just let's let's beat Magneto's evil plan again. Because where do you where do you go with that? If you look at like look at the X Men movie, the first one where Magneto has an evil plan and it involves turning everyone to mutants or to mutate them at least. And the thing is, is like it's a dumb plan. It's not going to hit more than like what he's not going to get the world with it. Nope. He'll hit New York. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that if a disaster happens. Like we used to think that in in life, we used to think that if this big disaster thing happened, that things would change immediately. It would alter the world in a complete way. But look at how many people died from COVID and nobody even blinked. You know what I'm saying here? Like the status quo will will fight to hold itself. And you you just if you keep doing that kind of story, it just isn't interesting in a weird sort of way. For all that I do love stories where the dragon finally gets its butt whooped. Um, some of my favorite stories are ones where in the dragon is the main character. Yes. Like John Gardner's Grendel is fascinating. Grendel is clearly a monster who kills people and even eats some of them. But Beowulf is even more frightening because he's just a man and he shows up out of nowhere to pick a fight with what is objectively a horrifying monster. And then not only does he beat it, he chases it down into the fens and kills its mother. And the story recognizes, you know, the hero of your story is the villain of another story from a different perspective. Yeah, and that's and that's always one of the most fascinating things that I think is is uh really interesting about that type of storytelling, right? And it's also why I love characters like Queen Ashara. Because depending on your perspective, depending on the perspective that the story is told, changes who the hero is, right? Um, there's a, I think it was, uh, early, late nineties, early two thousands. There was a, uh, book release called like the last ring bearer. And it was literally Lord of the Rings from the perspective of Sauron. And it was a completely different telling of the story. It was a completely different, uh, you know, perspective where Sauron was not necessarily the bad guy, but was betrayed and made into the bad guy made in, in played that role because it needed to be done, but wasn't necessarily bad. And it was a fascinating read because the, regardless of how you feel about, you know, Lord of the Rings at the time, at least it was just mind blowing to have something that was such a, clear black and white like hero versus villain thing turned on its head just by a couple key events and a shift in perspective and i love comic books for this particular because batman and spider-man to me always have the most relatable villains right uh, even if you want to just, if you don't know anything about the comic books and you look at the comic book movies, especially the Sony Spider-Man movies that have come out, Adrian Toomes is a completely understandable villain in what he's doing, right? He's not doing it for malice. He's doing it because he wants to give his his family a better life, a life that was being taken away from him by one Tony Stark. Uh, you know, look at Sandman. He is not, he didn't want that. 
he was just trying again to like provide in a world that didn't care. Uh, you have Dr. Octavius who, you know, was a brilliant scientist who wanted to better humanity and then got taken down by his own science in an accident and not anything of his own. And you see that in like the, the, the more recent movies, but it's the same thing with Batman too. They're all tragic characters, but they're all relatable. And like people will say, I'm going to argue that Victor Saz is not particularly relatable. Fair. Victor Saz is not. <laughs> not I just say, felt uh, the need. Not, I felt the need to throw that one in. I'm not disputing your thesis, but but not all most of them. Of them it, absolutely, it is true. But but like like I or, mean, or Craven. 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 At one point, Craven's last hunt, he took out Spider Man and then became Spider Man to carry on the lineage of Spider Man. Why? Yeah, I wasn't doing a very good job of it. He I, he did for a while actually. No, he wasn't. He was never good as Spider-Man. But he tried. He was good at being a spider. And but, I think that's the biggest problem with Craven. Oh, yeah. The re- Craven's fatal flaw is that he sees the world as something to be mastered. That's his whole hunter shtick. He goes out and challenges himself by picking the hardest thing to kill and then killing it, proving that he's harder. But even That's how he interacts with everything. But I'm That's why he couldn't get past Spider-Man. Sure. Because Spider-Man beat him. And the thing is, is Peter Parker is never going ham. It's very rare that Spider-Man Peter Parker goes ham. He does not. He does not do that if he doesn't have to, because he doesn't want to hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. He very much, at heart, he is still that lonely kid who whose uncle and aunt took him in when his parents vanished, who felt like a loser and a nobody, and so he's got a lot of anger in there. But he generally feels a lot of empathy for people. Uh, as opposed to the Miles Morales type character, Miles is, in a way, Miles is a lot more stable and mm-hmm. less damaged than Peter. But if anything, Miles feels even more responsible because responsibility is just something he saw in his community. His community is people taking responsibility for other people because that's how they get through. And that's Miles. Miles is a Miles is the you know the the great power, great responsibility. Miles had great responsibility before he ever had power because he mm-hmm. knew that the less power you have, the more other people need you and you need them. And it's just it's an interesting inversion, and the, the two characters are very different, but they're very similar in that they have this compassion for others. I think that is one of the things of the, the great the great characters, whether they're flawed or not. It's it's do they do they have enough compassion? But like Batman is an example of somebody with ridiculous amounts of compassion. You almost never see it. But when you do, you realize, oh, mm-hmm. oh, this is why this guy's friends with Superman. This Superman is probably the only person who could be friends with this guy because he's the only one who understands just how heavy what he is carrying is. You know, Batman wants to save everybody. Batman doesn't kill the Joker because Batman wants to save the Joker because he, even though he knows the Joker is a menace and a monster, he also knows that he used to be a person. That there's a person in there. They've even seen it. Thanks to people like John Johns. They've actually looked inside and seen that person. He's in there. And he is in hell. And so Batman is never going to kill him. Yep. He's not going to do that. But he would do it if it was going to be like a, a like a salvation thing. But he wouldn't do it just to, to, you know, to snuff out somebody who's struggling for his life. And I know I've interrupted you. But you you made that happen yeah. in my head. You, no, that's you fair. And it's like Spider-Man as a character, Spider-Man's villains, the best Spider-Man villains are the ones who are like a warped reflection of Spider-Man in much the same way that the best Batman villains are a warped reflection of Batman. But to bring it back in, in, it's just to point out that those are good examples of there is no end or satisfaction even when the dragon is beaten. Yeah, because, you know, 
the dragon isn't really the, the dragon is a is a mentality thing. It's we created the idea of dragons to to make all the things in the world that don't make sense make sense. But those things don't make sense. Mm-hmm. So when you beat the dragon, you have merely cleared a day, and tomorrow will be here, and everything in the world is still going to be here. And I think that is really a fascinating idea for a story. I think it's one of the things I love about Superman is that Superman can never have the things he wants, despite the fact that he is practically a god. Uh, same like, thing for Wonder Woman in that regard in a lot of aspects, too. Yeah, but it's for Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman grew up as a god or like, you know, mythical figures existed in her life and she accepted them as real. To her, the imminent and the unnatural are part of existence. But he grew up a farm boy. You know, and only slowly came to realize I have all this power and I should do something with it to help people, but he'll never really get the things he wants. Like in the versions of the story where his parents are both dead, where John and Martha are dead, he'll never get them back. And if only one of them is dead, he'll never get that one back. And he'll never save Krypton because it already happened before when he was a baby, his survivor's guilt is ridiculous. There's no way he could have stopped it. And yet he still feels it. And he'll never be human. He doesn't, it's not that he wants to be human in the sense of he wants to get rid of his powers. He doesn't want to help people. He wants to be human in that, you know, we're, we're his world. He grew up here. Of course he wants to belong, but he never really will. In a way, not even people on earth, like people, humans that live in the real world can know what it's like to be in a culture that is isolating or doesn't quite match them. Like, I think everybody has that to some degree or another. But we'll never have the true knowledge that we we really don't actually belong here the way he does. And the fact that he tries anyway, the fact that he dresses up as a human being and goes to work and works a job and tries to be friends with people without taking advantage of all that power. That's the story. The story is not about him punching a cowboy on a flying horse. Although, although I, I love Tara Man as a character. He's ridiculous. But the story is about you can do this. If, if if he can do all the stuff he's trying to do with these completely impossible odds on him, you can get up. You can walk through your day. You can keep going. You can not give up. You know, it just, there's a reason that he was written by two, the two, two children of immigrants came together and wrote a story about the ultimate immigrant. The guy who will never actually, you know, the truth, justice, and the American way are his ideals. And yet, will he ever really be human? Will he ever really be accepted by them? And that's powerful to me is the idea of, you know, the almost Sisyphean fight. That's the thing about, you know, stories where the dragon is beaten. I think if, if you ever read the original Beowulf, like you actually sat down and read that thing. I'm actually you. I know I have. Yes. The end of Beowulf is literally Beowulf dies fighting a dragon Mm -hmm. and that's that is to me the ultimate dragon story because the dragon we we know about grendel and his mother we know what they are we understand them the dragon comes out of nowhere at the end of the story he just shows up and starts wrecking beowulf stuff because that's what dragons do and beowulf goes out to fight him because that's what beowulf does but beowulf knows he ain't gonna make it he, he knows that thing is a dragon. I am not going to kill that. That is going to take me out. But I've lived my entire life like this. I can't not be Beowulf now when it would make sense to not be Beowulf. Like, if anything, I should really stop being Beowulf right about now and be somebody who gets on a boat and leaves because there's an effing dragon here. But I am not going to do that. And that's 
that to me is one of the most, one of the things I remember the most from, from my college years is one of my teachers talking about the fact that the perfect thing about tragedy is that tragedy is customed to the person experiencing it. When you, when you look at the main character of a tragedy, it wouldn't be a tragedy if some other person was doing this. Like if you took Macbeth and, and Hamlet and you switched plays on them so that Macbeth is in Hamlet and Hamlet is in Macbeth, they wouldn't have a problem. Mm-hmm. Hamlet would never murder Duncan. He's not going to kill the king. That's not who he is. His wife is like, you have to murder the king. You're like, no, we're not doing that. I don't want to be king that bad. Cut over to Macbeth in Hamlet. Oh, Claudius is you know going on in church and Macbeth's like, you know, yeah, I'm going to kill him now. He's completely vulnerable. There's nobody to see me do it. Yes. Stab, stab, stab. Okay. I'm king now. Problem solved. That's the great thing about these stories is that they are tailored around the character who experiences them. Uh, One of the reasons that I think Miles Morales had a really great run in the unlimited stories, and I don't think he's had as good a run since is that people who are writing his stories now keep trying to make him into another Spider-Man when they should just be trying to make Spider-Man him. Does that make sense? Which the story should be tailoring to him. Which they're starting to do, but that's a whole other episode, right? We can. Yeah, I, yeah, that's yeah. I, but, I, but my I, point I, is just there. I, yeah. At this point, I need to shut up and let you talk because <laughs> I've been going for like twenty minutes. No, no, and, and everything you're saying is true, but like the the root of it is like the best stories, in my opinion, are the ones that don't end with uh, a clean resolution. And to be fair, most of our favorite media, when you really look at it. Uh, TV shows, even movies, especially when they're part of series or long running uh, things don't have clean resolutions because clean resolutions are not real. And I think if and you clean act- resolutions don't leave you with much to do, right? Like going back to what we were talking about with one of the earlier questions with, you know, tidying up loose ends. Part of the reason why tidying up loose ends also doesn't happen all the time is because Sometimes you just can't tidy up all the loose ends. Sometimes that is an impossibility. Uh, you know, think about your own personal stories that you you could tell about your life. How many of them end clean? How many of them don't have a an asterisk next to them of yes, but also this? And this is another thing that needs to be considered. It feels more natural when the dragon is not necessarily beaten because the dragon isn't the literal dragon it's everything else that happened around it. So I think we have time for one more and I think uh, we're going to call it after that. And this one comes from Scott. Uh, What is your take on Odin trying to make certain mortals had no information on the first ones and the Zareth Ordus or in this case, Zareth Mortis. Do you think that Odin made it a point to try to keep that information from mortals, Matt? I mean, that implies that he thought about telling mortals anything ever but do you even think he knew about it i think he knew about something going on over there because he certainly traded his eye for power he knew that the shadowlands existed and he could see into them to some degree because he was linked to the eye and was using it uh did he have all the facts i doubt it since it seems like the other eternal ones didn't have all the facts you know what i'm saying i don't think they i it seems like they didn't even all know about the first ones or the, that Zareth Mortis had the sepulcher in it. They, there seems to be a lot of, oh, okay. Like the Primus barely seemed to understand what was going on. And, and I have suspicions about that dude. Um, but I don't think Odin was necessarily trying to make certain that we had no information on them. More that he, he just isn't in the habit of sharing information with anybody. Like the last time he tried sharing information with people, they went and bait a bunch of dragons like into the stewards of the world. 
and it made him so angry he had the uh, Halls of Valor ripped out of Oldowar. Like th- this is not a guy who likes to work well with others. He and when given when presented with a problem, his solution to it is we'll do it my way, and if we don't do it his way, he will throw a fit. Literally, he will throw a fit. He will mm-hmm. pitch a little hissy fit and take his his Halls of Valor and move them somewhere else. He effectively abandoned his his position as prime as prime designate. To go play, you know, make it in his own and, magic army in, in the floating other universe thing that he had made. And condemned Tyr and Ra to their fates as a result of it. Yeah, because, you know, he's not there. The, 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 the entire situation was so untenable because he decided to go live in a castle in the clouds and then killed the woman who helped build the castle in the clouds and turned her into a, into a monster. And then she, you know, got free. And that's another connection between the old gods and the forces of death we should think about at some point. Uh, she got free because Loken freed her, and then she literally trapped him in his cloud castle. Mm-hmm. The one that he had her build. There's a lot. I don't think it's Odin trying to hide things. I think it is Odin being a closed-mouthed dip who thinks that he knows everything and doesn't need to talk to that. anybody else or get anyone else's opinion on anything. I think that's part of it for me too, is I think Odin comes across as a character and I think this is intentional that likes to make it seem like he knows more than he actually does. And I think that's, we all know somebody like that, right? Who walks in, says a couple things and, you know, tries to pick up on keys in the conversation and act like he knows what's going on or they know that they know what's going on Uh, when they really don't. They just really good at pretending that they do. Odin's kind of like that. Like he gets Odin's ha- imposter syndrome without actually having imposter syndrome. Yeah. Like he gets ha- what everybody thinks that they are when they have, like, for instance, while Joe was saying that, I was like, I'm like that. Oh my God. And then I'm like, Matt, come on, calm down. You, you know, some <laughs> stuff, but yeah, that's Odin is like that. Absolutely. Odin, Odin thinks he is the smartest guy in the room, even though Tyr was the smartest guy in the room. Oh yeah. Or actually I'd say Rod N was the, the smartest guy in the room and Tyr was the strongest guy in the room. Yeah, and and then I think that's always been fascinating with me too, because like look at look at the deal he made to give his eye away, right? Who does that? Who thinks that's a good idea? Here's a shadow entity that I know nothing about, uh, who's brokering a deal with me. He'll tell me that I'll give me exactly what I want, but I got to give him a piece of my body. Sure, I'll take that deal. No, like, and he probably made that decision based off of half the information he knew. Uh, or like he always strikes me as the guy that would like not listen to the full part of a conversation, even if you're telling him directly, like you could be having a conversation with Odin. Yeah, I'm going to try to murder you at some point. Like it's going to happen. You should probably just get rid of me. He'd be like, yeah, it's real nice. Cool. I'll just take that deal. Uh, here's my eye. I, may, I just want to make sure you heard me. I'm going to come back and try to murder you or, or to like use your power against you in some capacity. Yeah. No, no, that's, 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 that's fine. Like, like not even paying attention and just agreeing because he, all he heard was I get what I want. Mm-hmm. So like, I think that there's to a certain degree, I think Odin suffered from the fact that he was second best in two areas, which made him a good choice to be prime designate. Cause maybe he's not as strong as tier, but he's strong. And he's also maybe not as smart or wise as Rodden, but he's wise. So he doesn't have the deficiencies. He's kind of a good all-rounded guy, as long as he has the proper people advising him. The problem was that he didn't take advice. And attempting to do things 
that he didn't think should be done, again, caused him to pitch a hissy fit. And once he starts pitching his little hissy fits, he effectively derelicts his duty. His responsibility is just abandoned. Uh, I think Joe's on it. I don't know if it's as, if it's as bad as literally would, would ignore what people are saying right to him. But I definitely think that if you tell him something he doesn't want to hear or, you know, I, I honestly think the whole deal with Helia comes down to Helia going, this is an extremely bad idea. You really shouldn't do this. And he's like, oh, if you think it's such a bad idea, I'll, I'll do it on you first. And that way you'll be in charge of it. Do you see where I'm going with this? Oh, yeah. Like the guy is, I don't even know if egotism is the right word. I think he, he actually comes the closest of any World of Warcraft character to being just a legit narcissist. Yeah, I'd agree with like, that. So I think that's going to do it unless there's anything else you want to add to that. I mean, not to the Odin thing. I, th- I think that eventually I would like to see Odin get spanked. Um, but I don't think we need to go into too much detail on, the, on that no. right now. And we're probably going to see Odin. Let's be honest, right? We're, we're going to see Odin in this expansion at some point because there's zero chance that the Dragon Isles open up. The dragons are back and, you know, that we are, we're trying to, you know, help the dragons get their groove back. And Odin doesn't show up and be like, no, I don't want this. This is not what I want. Uh, so we'll, we'll see more. There'll be more chances to to take on Mr. Fireface. Yeah, Mr. Bad Decisions. Captain Bad Decisions. That's Odin's actual name. All right, but Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions of patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means this podcast signing community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to this podcast, better chance at having your question answered on any of our podcasts or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Uh, if, again, if you have questions for this podcast or any of our podcasts, send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com specify what show it's for so that we can uh, make sure it's set aside uh, if you're a patreon supporter you can hit us up on our patreon q and podcast questions channel on discord uh, and if you're not a supporter we want to hit us up on discord anyway we have a q and podcast questions channel set aside specifically for you but with that folks thank you very much and we'll see you next week I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to (laughs) pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.